already got um, one really good question, and I will, I'll try to answer it. I mean, it's an excellent question, to be honest with you, uh, and which I love. I love excellent questions. Uh, the, w the, the two questions, I'm going to combine them. Two people asked basically the same sort of question. This is just a sidebar, and it's a little bit more advanced, and it's a little hard to communicate, so I'll do my best to, to make it as clear as I know how. Why is it that Moses in 3320 cannot see the face of God? And then the other question is why is it in Exodus 40 when the glory fills the tabernacle that Moses has to leave? Okay, now this, that's an advanced question and I, you wouldn't be asking it if you weren't ready for it, you know, you know what I mean? So let me try to communicate this as, as tersely as I know how. Tell me if you see this part. Did you know when I was working through the, the Melchizedek, here, here comes one. Ah, oh, there we go. When I, 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 you could hear that, right? Yeah. Uh, it, 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 I felt the need. I had to do it. And I, you, you do those things. Um, so, sorry. To, I wanted to get it out of the way right off the bat so I don't distract you in the middle of something important. But um, <laughs> you learn to time those things, right? Um, but but uh, what, what was the thesis? And this is, this, this is how you read narratives. And this is a finer point in terms of reading Old Testament, New Testament narratives. What was the thesis? It's not just, we're going to get a little more sophisticated here. It's not just that Moses is a heightened type of Christ. We made that point last night, right? How? Well, he's not of the Levitical order. He's of a different order. He's offering himself, not an animal sacrifice. But then, what did I say this morning? What's the thesis? Think with me just for a second. What's the thesis? It's that as you move through 32 through 34, there is an ascending heightening of Moses as a type of Christ. It gets more intense. Do you see what I mean? It's more intense. How? Well, in 32, uh, 30 through 32, it's, it's more atonement, standing in the place of others, offering himself. But once he ascends that mountain, or he's in the tent of meeting, what, what do you get? Face to face, friend to friend. When you ascend the mountain in 33, 14 and following, moving to 23, what are you getting? You're getting not only God being with Moses, but God being with the people through Moses, and then you get Moses making a request for even greater fellowship with God. God, show me your glory. Now, I'll tell you what this means, and it's hard to get your mind around. It certainly is for me. So, you know, I might not communicate it as clearly as I should. Um, but God's glory is God. Uh, it's the fullness and the refulgence and the splendor of his being. That's what his glory is. Glory's not some created thing per se, it's God. And in the economy under Moses, prior to the coming of Jesus, Moses was not ready to see that face to face. Why? It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God because His glory consumes all that is wicked. 
He, he's a consuming fire. It's I don't want to terrify you because you're in Christ. You can't be terrified, right? But if you're not in Christ, any horror movie you've ever seen is an adumbration of that glory consuming. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing. Moses isn't ready for that. There has to be a future, fuller, Christological, Christ-centered, Christ-secured fellowship with God. So in a similar way, in a similar way, when the glory of God fills the tabernacle at the end of Exodus 40, what does Moses have to do? Moses has to depart. Why? Well, it just made me think I need to tell you about this. It's to make way for someone greater, right? It's to make way for someone who can stand in the presence of the fullness of God's glory and mediate that glory without the church being consumed by it, undone by it. So, I, and I... I, don't, I didn't want to make this because I, I consider an advanced point, but since you're, you're asking, there, there, there's an internal, intensive movement in the book of Exodus to a form of glory that not even Moses can bear. It's a glory that is therefore to come. And, and how's it situated? Well... It's situated as the glory of Moses fades, right? The veil is fading. A glory comes that Moses can, cannot stand in, and Moses, Moses departs. Now, uh, just along those lines, um, and uh, that, that's, so that was the question that was asked. I want to do two things. I want to see, if, are there other questions that you have about what we've covered? And then I want to do something I didn't have planned but I realize it fits so well. Someone suggested it, um, just said, boy, I wish you'd talk about that. And I said, let's do it, because it's, it's useful. Uh, trust me, it's useful. It, it is a prelude to Hebrews, and it's getting us closer. But are there any, um, any questions on what we've covered? Is it, is it clear enough? Going once, going twice, very good. Uh, oh, yes, sir, sorry. In 3311. 3320. Yes, sir. What's up? Yes, sir. Notice in 3311, it's the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is a typological form that reveals yet veils the glory of the Lord. It's kind of like the tabernacle itself. It's a type that reveals yet veils the fullness of glory. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, there's no intermediating feature, no intermediating uh, tent, no tabernacle dwelling. It's Moses and it's the Lord descending. So there's a, there's a sense in which what Moses is seeing on the mountain, this is why it's the high point of the Old Testament, is the no longer tent, tabernacle, mediated presence of God's glory. It's, 
and, and it's why only then does his face start to shine, right? His face isn't shining per se coming out of the tent of meeting. His face is shining after he's been with the Lord on the mountain without a tent of meeting, without a tabernacle, without any typical structure. Is that language clear enough? By typical, I mean a typological form through which God dwells with his people. You don't have that on the mountain. And so there's a, there's a, the, oh, this language will help. There's a directness on the mountain that is not present in the tent of meeting or even in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is a different question because that, that's, that's the end of Moses. Uh, that's the end of the uh, tabernacle when it's filled with God's glory and it's anticipating something greater. But in your question, that's part of the logic. There's a mediation through the tent of meeting in 3311. There is no mediation that we can see on the mountain. And that form of directness is not given under the old covenant. So what, see, so, so I guess the, the, the way I could put it to you is this, that the movement from the old to the new is from lesser to greater directness of access to God. And what Jesus, which we're, we're starting to move toward the, the, the Lord Jesus, what Jesus has, Hebrews 1.3, when he sits down, Hebrews 8.1, when he sits down at the right hand of God, what does he have? And he's alive forever. What does he have? Face to face fellowship with the Father by the Spirit, and he mediates that. No longer tent of meeting, no longer tabernacle, no longer earthly temple. It is Christ giving you access to God that you might see his glory and know his presence. So that's, that's partly what's happening there. And it gets, gets you into the, there, there really is a kind of, and tell me if this language works for everyone. If it doesn't, I'll try to put it a different way. There's an ascending eschatological movement in the book of Exodus. You see? Jesus is present uh, in, in these promises, types, and shadows. Moses is the type through whom Jesus is present in, as the promised Messiah, conferring glory on his people. But it, there's an ascending intensification that goes from Exodus 32 through 34 and then to 40. And, and when Moses can't see the face of God and his glory is fading, you've realized what? That as glorious as he is, he is not Jesus. Does that help some? Were there any other, any other questions? Yes, sir. Yes, um, if, if I could put it this way, the question is, um, what are the correlations between um, Genesis 2, Exodus 32 through 34, and then Jesus with the wilderness? We're going to be getting into that. I won't be able to deal with it as much as I'd like to, but I can give you this. There's a similarity. It, this will give you a widescreen angle on the whole thing. Earthly Eden and earthly wilderness are probation realms testing realms. Eden 
is pre-fall testing realm. And what, what was the test? Are you going to live for my glory, obey my word, and do it for my sake so that you can glorify and enjoy me forever, Adam? Will you destroy the works of the devil? Will you ascend the mountain of God and enter into Sabbath rest? And, and here's the key. And tell me if this makes sense. As long as Adam is in Eden with a serpent speaking words against God and a tree of knowledge of good and evil threatening death for disobedience, he is not at rest. So that, so that, will, that, that Eden environment, I like to call it the probational prelude to Sabbath rest. It's a probationary prelude. It's, uh, it's the... It's a, it's a means to a much higher and more glorious end. After the fall, if you want me to get as wide as I know how, from Genesis 3 to the end of the age, the church is in wilderness. Wilderness is simply a place of testing and a place of trial. But the Lord dwells in the tents of Shem. The Lord is with his people. The Lord is with his wilderness people in a pillar of cloud by day, in a pillar of fire by night. He is with his people, whether it's an ark moving from the world that then was to the world that now is, or the exodus out of Egypt. The Lord is with his people in wilderness. And, and the, the way to understand Canaan if, you, if, if, if you'll let me do this, I'm, I'm probably throwing a lot, but I think it'll make sense. You know what Canaan is? Canaan's like a miniature, localized resting realm. That's why Psalm 95, 7 through 11, which is quoted in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, that's how you can remember it, 7 through 11, 7 through 11, 95 in Hebrews 3. That's why the, the land of Canaan is called my rest. Because Israel moves through the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan and then enters into rest. And that rest is a little typical, miniature place where God dwells and his people rest. But is it, is it the fullness of Sabbath rest? Of course not, right? But it's a type. Minus that, if you take that little structure out, which is a big structure, take that big structure out, then the whole from Genesis 3 until Jesus raising you bodily into Sabbath rest, the whole is a wilderness. Does that make sense? And so, but here, here's the difference. Adam, in the probation, did not have Jesus. Jesus was not needed because there was no sin. And Adam sinned and fell. Adam, after the fall, has Jesus. He has the promise of a redeemer who will crush the serpent's head. He's clothed in garments that prefigure the image of Christ. And he is given um, the promises of the Messiah, so much so that on the day Adam and Eve should die, Eve is named the mother of the living. And coming right out of death is life. Hmm? <laughs> and, and from that point forward, God dwells with a people. Abraham's a great example. Uh, Hebrews um, eleven ten through 17. Abraham's a great example. 
God dwells with his people and promises them an inheritance even though on this earth, 1 Peter 2, 11, 12 is good here too, they are strangers and aliens and pilgrims. You are not home all the way, neither am I. But we are in process of being brought home in our union with Christ. So, so the, the wilderness motif, which Hebrews is going to pick up on, and I can't do as much as I'd like to. I did some six years ago on it, I think. Um, that, that's a, a global, I'd like to call it a kind of global paradigm for understanding the church as a pilgrim people in this age. And, and it's why I, I gave up hope long ago, once I understood all this, long ago in my 20s, I gave up any hope of there being any enduring, lasting expression of the kingdom of God apart from the church. The church is it why we serve the church, right? This is it. This is the presence of God. And um, everything else all around us is, is not the church. <laughs> it's wilderness. And so uh, when, when, you're, when you're thinking about this, the beauty of it is Adam after the fall, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, us in, in Christ, we have Jesus either promised in the old, or now ascended in the new. We have Jesus, but more basically, Jesus has us. And what Jesus is doing, right this second, he's bringing you and me to glory, right now, by his word and spirit. He's building us up, strengthening us, and bringing us to glory. And so the wilderness is the place where there is salvation in Christ. But there's also what? testing and hardship. Malicious, hateful Babylites are all around you. All around you. Seeking to do what? Seeking to raise the city of man. And Bart and Rahner and liberal theologians are telling you, I've got to stop because I'm getting off track. I'm stopping. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. But do you see, do you see where, I, where I was going? I need to stop. I, I've got limited time. Okay, Bart, <laughs> Bart, Bart and Ron are in the liberal theologians since 1967, Vatican II. They have constructed a theology. Do you want to know what it is? Here it is. Tell me if this doesn't send chills. It sends chills up my spine. What was the project of Babel? Raise the ziggurat tower of man and proclaim his autonomous glory. You know what that is? That's antichrist. Tower of Babel is antichrist, right? Well, guess what? Since about 67, the neo-Orthodox, Bart, the Roman Catholics, Rahner, the liberal tradition, you know what they say the essence of the gospel is? God says yes to all men without discrimination in Jesus. It's like, you know what? You know what's happening in the mainline church? It's like the Tower of Babel was, was fallen. Guess what? They're raising it back up. And now man is exalted. God exists to say yes to man, you see? And it's the beginning of the end, you know? It's been that way from the beginning, so don't, don't hear me saying it's, it's a catastrophe, but that's what's happening. But guess what? You know, you know what the clearest sign that Babel has fallen is? Clearest sign? Pentecost. You know why? Pentecost, what did God, okay, I'm gonna finish, I'll, I'll do this real quickly, but, but, <laughs> Um, but it, in Babel, what does God do? 
He sees, he descends, he judges, he scatters, and he confuses. What does he do at Pentecost? He sees, he descends, he gathers, he blesses, and he unites. Babel has fallen. Babel will not rise to victory ever again. It might rise in a penultimate way. But what happened at the fall of Babel? Genesis um, 11. What happened there was eschatologically confirmed when Jesus Christ ascended and poured his spirit out on his church. So don't fear, but just know the times. And uh, I don't know how I got onto that. A wilderness. I got onto it in wilderness. Um, so, so anyway, that, but, but the, so the, so, yeah, I'm sorry. So to, to answer the question, which I got off track doing, um, Eden and wilderness are earthly probation realms. The difference is that Adam didn't have Jesus, was not beyond probation. You and I do. Abraham, Adam after the fall, he did. We do. And Jesus will not lose any of those whom the Father has given him, but will raise up all on the last day. And so that's why, that's why, last point, that's why I don't talk politics. It's why I don't talk that much culture. Talk about the gospel, talk about the gospel, talk about the gospel, and then talk about the gospel. That's what it's about. So anyway, um, were there any other questions on that? Not that. Yes, sir. Real quick about signs. I was thinking about that when you were speaking earlier, about people looking for signs, uh, those in the wealth, I mean, in the battle of Egypt, and even today, yeah. people always show, and they invite signs, show us the signs. What, what's the difference in that and versus obviously Moses being with the Lord, and he's the only one that was with him, Right. right. Jesus says that the sign for this generation is the sign of Jonah. Three days, I'm in the grave, and the third day I rise again. That is the sign. And then the, the confirming sign are the signs, gifts, and wonders that are associated with Pentecost as a once-for-all event of redemption accomplished. When Jesus rises up, receives the Spirit, and pours the Spirit out, you see the flames of uh, tongues of fire, and you see signs, wonders, and miracles done by the apostles to attest to the once-for-all finished work of redemption. And that is a sign of judgment on the nations because God, God keeps the nations scattered. He keeps them confused. But on the day of Pentecost... He unites all in one language and in one Messiah as a prolepsis of the age to come. When we rise up into heaven, we will all speak the same language, worship the same God, have been baptized in the same spirit, and the ziggurat tower of Babel will fall forever. That's why, that's why Babel, Babylon in Revelation, Babylon has what? Fallen. It's beautiful. So, so those are the signs. Okay, now, um, here, here's what I wanted to do by way of, of, a, of a brief transition now. And it just came to me that I think this would be useful. Um, Moses, and, and turn to, um, um, let's, let me see which one text I want to use. Um, turn to Luke 9. 
if, if you would. This is, this is not something I plan to do, but I think it's a useful prelude or a useful transition. And I think you'll see what, what I'm after here. Look at Luke 9, 28 through um, 36. And as I preface this, realize this. What, what's the, the, could we get higher than Moses in the Old Covenant? No. So when, when the Spirit um, superintends what Luke is saying to the church and commits it to Scripture, the Spirit of Christ wants us to understand something critical. Look, about eight days, uh, about eight days after these sayings, and that's take up your cross, follow me, Jesus saying, I must die and rise again, uh, Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. After this time, eight days after, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, does anyone have a, a Bible that will say down below what the Greek word for departure is? Exodon, in Greek, yeah, exodus. <laughs> Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. <laughs> Isn't that a great comment? Didn't know. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything that they had seen. Now, I won't read the other text, but in, in Matthew 17, you probably have a little reference. If you have a cross-reference Bible, look at Matthew 17. Do you know what else is added about Jesus' transfiguration that's useful? Jesus' countenance was changed and his face became brighter than the sun as he stood before them. His, his face was transformed and, and, you know, I actually probably should have chosen that text now that I'm thinking about it. So turn over there real quickly. This is what happens when I don't prepare and I'm sorry. I shouldn't do that. Um, you see why I... I try to stay prepared. But just so you know, if, if you'll look at 17.2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and then Moses and Elijah appeared talking to them. And as they were talking, 
he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son, beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. And Jesus came and touched them and said, rise up. Now what's happening in that? You already know, don't you? Do you see it already? I probably don't have to say too much about this because of what we've looked at. But let's take them in order, um, in reverse order. In Matthew 17, what is the significance of Jesus' face shining like the sun? What was the significance of Moses' face shining? The glory of God and the fellowship bond that Moses had with God on the mountain. Now, Moses and Elijah are standing beside Jesus, and this glory that is as bright as the sun, which means what? If you looked at it, what would happen to your eyes? You're gone. What's that old song, Blinded by the Light? This would be intensively and eschatologically the case. Was that the Manfred Mann Band? My mind, get out of the 80s, Tipton. I'm so sorry. That's 70s, actually. I'm in the 70s. <laughs> Help me. Um, I've got to be aging way too fast. Okay. Um, the point, if I can stay focused, is that the light so vastly superseded Moses that if you looked at it, you would be blinded instantly, right? Moses bore this refracted, creaturely, indirect form of glory. Jesus bears it in such a degree that it is blinding as the sun in its radiance. But then what happens? What happens is after that effulgence appears and then disappears, who's missing? Moses falls away. Elijah falls away. And who reaches out his hand to draw his disciples near? Jesus. And what does the voice from heaven say? This is so key. This is my beloved son. Listen to him only. Right? As important as Moses was, as important as Elijah was, listen to him only. And now, if you'll work the Mark 9 text, or the Luke 9 text in, what were they talking to Jesus about? They were talking about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem in what events? Plural. Crucifixion, followed by resurrection, followed by ascension. And Jesus is telling them about himself. And he is describing to them what is going to be transacted. And do you know what Moses and Elijah are doing? They are basking in the glory of the one greater than both who has turned his face toward where? A cross that is followed by the glory that is on his face. See, the Mount of Transfiguration, I should have put this in. 
thank you for asking about it because I wasn't going to do it. I'm in a rush, and that always makes for Tipton making mistakes and not serving well. But um, what Jesus has on his countenance is the adumbration or anticipation of the fullness of the glory fellowship with the Father and the Spirit that is His from all eternity and will become His as the resurrected Son as He rises from the grave and ascends into heaven and sits at God's right hand. So what's the logic? Well, think of it this way. Try to keep everything integrated. Remember that ascending logic of typology in Exodus 32 through 34? Guess what? In Matthew 17 and in Luke 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you want to call, let's just call Mount Sinai and the tabernacle wineskins. Let's just call them wineskins. What's happening? (laughs) They're getting blown wide open by the Son of God, right? Something something that is organically related to that glory that Moses had, but so vastly supersedes it that that it leaves Moses totally behind. He's gone. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And the Son of God remains. Now that is what if I, if I could, and I'm, I'm so glad this was mentioned. This is the prelude to Hebrews, and where does this happen? On a what? Mount of Transfiguration, right? This is the movement. This is the movement of our Bibles, and who starts coming into focus? Moses and Elijah as types who witnessed to the coming of the glory of the Son revealed on a mount of transfiguration as he talked about his exodus out of Egypt by cross, by resurrection, and by ascension. So that when Jesus rises and he talks to his disciples, what does he say? We'll use Luke. Luke um, 24, uh, 20 through 23, Luke 24, 44 through 49. What does he say? Beginning with, beginning with Moses, so Adam to Moses, Abraham, he tells his disciples what? All the things in Scripture concerning himself. And when he does, what happens to their hearts? They burn, right? You know you're his disciple when you hear of him and your heart Burns. Do you know what that burning is? It's the burning of the glory that is transforming you into his image likeness. It's the burning of glory that is bringing you where he is. And, and, the, and the beauty that we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, as we, as we get ready to approach it, we're not there yet, I've got one more thing to say. But the beauty of Jesus is just like Moses, who is a type, He is this, not primarily for himself, but for you as his people. See? The logic of the high priest. Adam was what? A priest king. Representing whom? 
all humanity, all the elect. But you, you, you get that, right? You got to get the decree in there. But he's representing all of the elect. At that point in time, all humanity who would descend from him by any other generation. But he's representing them. Who is Moses? He's the mediator of this covenant of grace in its old covenant typical form. And he says, God, let your presence go with me and your people. When Jesus is talking about his exodus out of Egypt, there's a Freudian slip, I'm sorry. When Jesus is talking about his exodus out of Jerusalem, it's an exodus patterned after the exodus out of Egypt. And it is an exodus for whom? For Jesus and his church. So do you see the connection between Adam and the people he represents, Moses and the people he represents, and then Jesus and all whom he represents? That's the logic of priestly mediation. It's embedded intrinsically in these mountain episodes and in these representative figures associated with the mountains. So what do you do? Here's what I want you to see. Here's the way we're moving. Look at my arm. We're moving just like that. There's an ascent from, from Eden to Sinai to the Mount of Transfiguration and now to what the author of Hebrews is going to call Mount Zion, which is in a distinct heavenly realm where Christ has gone as a forerunner. So what, may I make one more, one, one more observation? And then um, I'll give you a break. Um, is that okay? It's, uh, okay, let me just see something here. Yeah, I can do this. I, I just want to give you one, one window into something that will help. This will help open up the book of Hebrews. Um, if, if you wouldn't, wouldn't mind, um, I, I want you to look at Acts 2, 25 through 31. And, and why am I doing this? Well, let me explain to you why I'm doing this. The author of Hebrews is going to tell us that the main point of the book of Hebrews is that we have a heavenly high priest who lives in heaven at the right hand of God. And here's what I want to tell you about your Lord. I think you'll find this so wonderfully edifying. I want to talk to you briefly from Acts 2, 25 through 31, about this. And, and now think with me, and I'll try not to take longer than 15 on this. Um, I want you to think with me about what the ascension means for Jesus as ascended. I don't want you to think about yourself right now. We're, let's be fully Christ-centered and think about Jesus. Okay? What does it mean? Here's what I want you to see. In Acts 2, by the way, first sermon in Pentecost. It's got to be important, right? It's got to be a big one, right? So, and I know it's not the author of Hebrews, but it's a, an apostle, and it's the Spirit speaking in the Word. So, listen. Um, I, you know, let me, let me just make sure I'm not skipping something. Uh, let, 
Yeah, I'll just do Acts 2, 25 through 31. I'd like to do more, but we'll keep it to this. Peter is preaching Christ, and he says, David says of him, Christ. I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Stop. Stop right there. What is that talking about? Jesus, by virtue of his crucifixion, was laid in a tomb in his body for three days. And Peter is saying that it was, verse 24, it was not possible for death to bind Jesus Christ. And you will not abandon your Holy One to decay. Peter says that David was speaking of Christ when he wrote that. Now look. So, so okay, hold on. I'm sorry. So, for three days, Jesus, in his body, was in a tomb under the power of death with regard to his human nature. Right? Now, here's resurrection. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, listen, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Now here's the logic. David himself as a prophet, you can write in your margins if you're taking notes, 1 Peter 1.11. The prophets had the spirit of Christ in them, testifying to the sufferings and glories of Christ. David's a prophet. He speaks of Christ. And Peter, amplifying David's own prophetic utterances, applies the fulfillment of Psalm 16.10 to the ascension of Christ. And here's the, the point. Christ, and, as raised and ascended, not only saw no corruption, but listen, this is astounding, but in his resurrection and ascension, was filled with the, um, the fullness of pleasure that is at the right hand of God in heaven. God, by the Spirit, made known to the Messiah the ways of life. He filled the Messiah with the fullness of pleasure and delight that is at the right hand of God. And that is true of Christ in his humanity as ascended and sitting at the right hand of God. And you know this pleasure every time you hear the gospel. You get some of that pleasure. It is in Christ right now in its climactic, perfected form as he is seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is where pleasure forever 
in fellowship with God resides, and that's where Christ is. And it's just that, it's just that, that helps us see, if you'll turn to Acts 2, um, um, 32 and 33, we are witnesses of this. Now listen, God raised him from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of God. He has been given the Spirit, and by the Spirit, that Spirit, He pours out what you now see and hear. Tell me if you see this logic. I'll give you a break after this, okay? Tell me if you see the logic of this. What is Jesus pouring out on His church by the Spirit? The paths of life that lead to pleasure forever at the right hand of God in heaven. Do you see that? If it's rendered clear, you know what you just saw from Peter? The logic of Hebrews. That Jesus, listen, Jesus possesses as ascended what he confers by his spirit to his church. And that means that you are being, will be, and will come to climactic fullness, you will be filled with pleasure forever at the right hand of God when you see Jesus and are filled with all of his fullness as you come face to face with him in glory. Do you see? That's what your whole Christian life is about. The personal, life-giving, joy-producing pleasure of God that is in him and in you who are united to him by the Spirit. So what he has, he has in a manner analogous to Moses. And, and just to set you up for it, what did Moses do? Moses ascends and then what? Descends. Jesus ascends, Acts 2, receives the Spirit, and then what? Pours the Spirit out. Where is He? He's not on Sinai. He's on Mount Zion. And where He is, you not only are by faith, but you will be face to face when He returns to confer Sabbath rest upon you. So, we're going to turn finally to Hebrews, but if you, if you follow the logic of what we're doing, we've been doing Hebrews ever since we got to Moses. Do you see it? So now we're going to make explicit the things that were implicit in Exodus 32. We'll do that after the break. Thanks for your patience as I rambled on Ronner and Bart. I didn't mean to do that. Okay.